Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel today. My name is Greg Paris. So glad you've joined us on campus. If you've joined us online, welcome to you. We're so thrilled you've uh, joined along. We hope you're having a blessed day as well. Today is uh, chapter 26 in the story. We are going through the Bible this year, following the story in chronological order, the narrative, the greatest story ever told. And let me just... uh, give you a a brief update on something I mentioned last week about uh, our cooperation partnership with Blood and Fire here, Bob and Stacy Ball. Bob and a team of men have been in Florida this past week, and lots of meals have been served, thousands every day in uh, this group that they're working with. And we've purchased a number of generators and other items helping, helping folks there recover in Florida. So Lots of good is being done. I just wanted to give you a, a good report about that. Of course, we're working in partner, partnership with Gulfside Church, which uh, Paul and Tia Erminger planted a few years ago through our auspices here. And so we have a network of friends and churches in that area, in the Sarasota, Cape Coral, Fort Myers area, and lots of good is getting done. I hope you're encouraged to hear that good report. Well, let me just begin by saying that there are a lot of unanswered questions in the world. There's an understatement. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow such natural disasters? Why am I here? What is going to bring me satisfaction? What happens after I die? These are all important questions. Are we alone in the universe? I mean, if you, if you listen to the History Channel, uh, there, there are aliens everywhere, aliens behind every bush. Here's my, here's my pushback. There are approximately 6.6 billion smartphones in the world today. Virtually all of them have high-def video capabilities. You can make a sellable, marketable movie with a smartphone. The quality of the, the optics and the lenses and the, and the, and the engineering makes it possible. Six billion of these things in the world. Please, if you're going to go off on an alien trip, show me something that's not in black and white and grainy. (laughs) Same way with Sasquatch. Don't show me, don't show me this grainy, out of focus film. There are six billion phones. If Bigfoot's out there, seems like someone ought to catch it. Then you'll get my attention. Just saying. So as human beings, we have these questions, and we're looking for answers. This is chapter 26. In this uh, chapter, Jesus describes the period between his arrest and the actual execution, the crucifixion, as the hour of darkness. Before the execution, Jesus stood before a man named Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of Judea at the time, and in this conversation, Pilate is really trying to ascertain if Jesus is a king. If he's a king, that means he's a threat to Rome. This is treasonous and could be a threat. Uh, It's in this discussion that Jesus reveals to Pilate his real identity. It's in this context that Jesus reveals that he is the truth. Hear the word truth. That he has come to bear witness to the truth. To which Pilate cynically responds, what is truth? That sounds a lot like a question being asked in today's postmodern, post-Christian culture. Well, you have your truth and I have my truth. Or if enough of us agree about a particular position, 
then it must be true. Therefore, truth has become relative to the thoughts, feelings, and opinions of this person or that, this group or that. Jesus pierces through the truth questioning by, by announcing very simply, very emphatically, I am the truth. Jesus says, if you follow me, the truth, you can make sense of the world, why we are here and where we are going, the questions about evil and suffering. All of these answer, questions will be answered someday to all of our satisfaction. So the question today I want to ask is, what is truth? What is ultimate reality? What is it? What are the implications of our relationship with the truth and the eternal issues like heaven and hell? Are those things real? Do you believe Jesus today when he says, I am the truth? Or would you honestly say, I'm not sure. I don't know. 2,000 years ago, Jesus made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the last time. We call it uh, uh, this triumphal entry. We celebrate it on Palm Sunday every year. This is when Jesus comes into the last week of his life. He's preaching and teaching and healing for three years prior to this, offering the truth to the world around him, and now he knows it's time for him to give his life. His entry into Jerusalem marks the beginning of this week we call Passion Week or Holy Week, and the first few days of that week he's in the temple, he's teaching, preaching some more, and on Thursday, of course, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. We celebrated that last week with World Communion Sunday and taking Holy Communion. He's betrayed by Judas after he goes to Gethsemane and he's arrested. He is first interrogated by a, a man named Annas, who is the former high priest. Then he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. Then at the crack of dawn on Friday, he's brought before the 70 members of the Jewish ruling a class who, who conclude that he is blasphemous and discerning of death. And the only person who has the, the authority, legal authority, to pronounce a capital punishment is Pontius Pilate, the current governor. They take Jesus to the Praetorium, which is the former palace of Herod the Great, where Pilate is staying during the Passover weekend in Jerusalem. Pilate typically resides in in the north in Caesarea, but he's come down because of the big crowds. He's brought his troops with him to maintain order. And Pilate meets Jesus and sees these Jewish leaders, these 70 elders. Now, Pilate hates these 70 Jewish elders, and they hate him. He hates them and their Jewish religion, and they hate him because he's part of the Roman government. They accuse Jesus of treason against Rome and blasphemy against God, Pilate concludes Jesus is not guilty of any of these charges. He then tries to pass him on to Herod Antipas, who's a vile and vulgar man who isn't interested, and sends him back to Pilate. Pilate then tries to release Jesus. He reminds the Jews that every year it's their custom to release a prisoner. And they say, how about I release Jesus to you? And they say, no, we want Barabbas, who's this Jewish mercenary causing trouble with Rome. And so Barabbas is released instead. Pilate then has Jesus flogged and bloodied, hoping to appease the crowd with that. After this flogging, he presents Jesus again to the crowd and says, look, this guy's no king, he's harmless, he's no threat to anybody, but the crowd demands he be crucified. Pilate's still wavering when the Jewish leaders play their trump card, and basically these Jewish leaders say to Pilate, if you don't crucify this man, we will report you to Tiberius, 
the emperor of Rome, and you'll be out of a job. Pilate, who is alive only for the power that he has achieved, concedes, and at 9 a.m. on Friday, Jesus is crucified. This is the context then for this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. I have three things to say about the truth today. It's on your outline. Here's the first one. There is truth. There is truth. There is absolute truth in the world. And it's truth that everyone should believe. Here's our verse for the day. It's John 18, 37. If you look on the screen, you're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, there's a truth that is outside of our world that gives us meaning. Are you listening? There's a truth that comes from outside of our world into our world. In this world, human beings tend to stumble around in the dark. We tend to wonder more than we know anything to be absolute. And so we fumble around, we stumble around. And so this is truth, which is not only absolute, but is a truth we discover. We don't create this truth. We don't originate this truth. It does not come from us. It is not by us. This is truth that comes from outside of us and is revealed to us. It's disclosed to us. It's a revelation to us. We're in the dark and suddenly the light dawns and we see it. The truth from outside comes into us. It is a truth that everyone should search for, submit to, and obey. It's the truth. It's the truth that people in Muncie, Delaware County should believe. It's the truth that people in Central Asia should believe. It's the truth that people everywhere in the world should believe because it is the truth. It's real and ultimate reality. And the truth that everyone should believe actually is simple. It's basic. And it is also met in our post-modern, post-Christian culture, met with intense hostility. You say anything about there's a heaven to gain, a hell to shun, you need Jesus and, you know, watch out. And you'll be vilified, castigated, mocked, ridiculed. You send out a tweet, an Instagram, a text, an email. You write a blog, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. People get hostile. Now, why is that? Why is it? Well, one of the reasons is because anytime a person makes a truth claim, whether they're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, or anyone else, they are also implicitly making a refutation. When someone says this is truth, this is ultimate reality, they're also implying anything that contradicts it is not true. So when someone says something about Jesus being ultimate truth, people react. Is that true? Is that really true? How can you say that? We are told over and over in today's culture to stop making truth claims. Hey, you people who keep claiming to know the truth, stop that. It's not possible to know the truth. Truth in today's culture is all relative. It all depends on what you think or how you feel. You live your experience, so that is truth for you. And a majority of people think something is true, then it must be true. The culture also says not only stop making truth claims, but stop seeking for truth. Stop making those claims and stop looking for, seeking for 
the truth. Stop asking the tough questions about meaning and purpose and being. We just can't know. We don't know if there is a heaven or a hell. How can you know? The quest for truth has been replaced in our culture with a a quest for happiness. Universities used to be a place of inquiry about the truth, about ultimate meaning. Not anymore. Christian values, Christian virtues, Christian ethics, the practice of a Christian life, an authentic Christian life, has now been labeled hate. Oh, you're a Christian, you must be hateful. Fascinating. Dr. Michael Brown wrote an article entitled, If You're a Christian, You Should Have a Target on Your Back. He offers specific examples. If you speak up for the unborn, you'll be targeted. If you uphold marriage and family as God intended, you'll be targeted. If you claim salvation is only through Jesus, you will be targeted. If you resist LGBT activism in the schools, you will be targeted. If you preach the word of God with brokenness and humility, but without compromise or dilution, you will be targeted. He cites Paul's assertion found in 2 Timothy 3.12, which says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Any questions? (laughs) If we're not being persecuted, resisted, or targeted on some level for our godly living and preaching in Jesus, then something is probably wrong. Jesus warned his followers, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 19. Many of you know that we recently disaffiliated from our denomination, the United Methodist Church. I joined the Methodist Church when I was about 12 years old, so all those years ago, over 50 years ago, I joined the Methodist Church. So I've been a member that long. I've been, I was in part of the ordained clergy for, al- for almost 50 years. And so that was discarded. We've had meetings recently where people were asking me how I'm doing with all of that, and it's very, been very difficult. I've never, I've never had a long-term relationship, commitment, covenant with someone or the group of someone's that, that I've walked away from. You know, I'm still married to the wife of my youth. I have long-standing friendships. I've, I've just never been through this kind of separation, this kind of trauma before, and it's had an effect on me been very difficult. Part of the difficulty is how I took a a covenant vow many years ago when a bishop of the church put his hand on my head and he said, he gave me this commission. He said, preach the gospel. Be faithful to preach the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season. In whatever occasion God may give you, preach the gospel once delivered to the saints. And I took that commission very seriously. I took that ordination to heart. So that's what I've done. When I wrote my bishop and told him my intention to withdraw and surrender my ordination credentials, I told him that he could be sure that I will continue to keep my ordination vows to preach the gospel. 
I took that just as seriously as I did when I stood with my wife 45 years ago and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And part of my confusion in the, in the middle of all of this has been the attacks that I've received personally. Suddenly, the guy who's tried to be faithful to his vows, his covenant ordination vows, is now the bad guy. You're hateful. You're judgmental. You're mean-spirited. You're intolerant. I'm the bad guy? Oh, so now I'm the bad guy. Wow. So my conclusion in all of that is we'll just have to let God arbitrate this one. We'll let God decide who's been faithful and who's been unfaithful. Listen to me carefully. Ultimate authority, based on individual belief, personal feelings, individual truth, my truth, I have my truth, you have your truth, will ultimately and surely implode the individual and the cultural around us and will not produce human flourishing. You decide to live your truth, what seems best to you, doing what, what, what is right in your own eyes, and everybody has liberty to do the same, will implode the culture. Rather, we must have foundational integrity in the essentials of the faith with all other sincere believers, respecting our differences, and there are some differences, and holding true to the faith once delivered to the saints. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said it this way, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's a pretty good axiom, I would say. So we plant the flag at the core orthodox principles that were confirmed in the early Christian church and at the ecumenical councils where the historic creeds of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed emerged as the immutable bedrock of our faith. That's, that's where we take our stand. That's where we draw the line. That's where we plant the flag. Mainline historic denominational Christianity, at least in the Western cultures, is now founded on shifting sand. And when the storm comes, the house will fall. And, I, and, I'm, t and I'm just pointing out, the house is, is collapsing. And by the way, so will your life. Personally, you, individually, your life will collapse if you are not standing on the firm foundation. The recent hurricane on the west coast of Florida is a, an example where we can see what happens when you don't have firm foundations. You can see a, a line of spectacular homes worth millions of dollars on the coast, west coast, and near Fort Myers in Florida, and now we see pictures of these where 10 homes in a row and only two of them are left standing and the two that are left standing seem like they've barely been touched. Very minor damage. And yet the homes on either side of them totally flattened. Just a pile of rubble. It's curious, isn't it? It's an interesting picture. One house totally destroyed and another house barely touched by the same storm. Well, we all know the difference. 
The house that still stands is on a firm foundation and was built according to hurricane codes. You can build a house that's hurricane proof. It costs a lot more, but it can be done. And so the homes and the wise people who own such homes that were built according to hurricane code on these firm foundations survived the storms. And those that didn't have not. We now see in this larger society, first a rejection of God and Judeo-Christian ethics followed by lawlessness. There's a gravitational pull to expressive individualism, a hedonistic view of the world. The progressive instinct is to replace God consciousness with a humanistic secular reaction, oftentimes now divided in our culture by diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, now, we can ju- just say this off the top. I'm, I'm not against diversity, inclusion, and equity. I think heaven will be reflective of diversity, <laughs> inclusion, and equity. It, you know, those are, those are noble, noble, honorable values. But the political instinct now associated with the mantra diversity, inclusion, and equity is towards secularism, socialism, and communism. The effect and in quit quick order, as we are seeing right before our eyes, is the disintegration of such things as a protected border, safety in the streets, justice in the courts. We've introduced lawlessness and a discarding of essential values and ethics that are the fabric of our society. So this mantra of diversity, inclusion, and equity, you know, it's it's virtually impossible to argue against it, but put in the wrong context, which it is being put into right now. Actually, you use the word uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity as an an acronym, and it spells die. So therefore, in the major cities of our country right now, I can perpetuate crimes in my neighborhood without the fear of accountability or prosecution. I don't care what the law says. I will do whatever I please, what seems good to me. In the denominational Christian world, historic denominations in our country, talking about Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and such, I can violate the agreed-upon standards in the church with impunity. I can be the pastor of a mainline denominational church right now, and even though the denomination says uh, has a particular position that all of us, when we congregate, agreed that this would be our position, either a theological position or a social position, but an individual pastor comes along and says, listen, uh, that's not my truth. Everybody's making up their own truth, their own standards. And so I'll behave and I'll preach any kind of message I want. I'll perform any kind of ceremonies I want because I'm not accountable to anyone except myself. And I'm here to tell you that this will lead to the implosion of the culture and the disintegration of the church. Here's the most important question. Is the ministry of our local church leading people to a genuinely transformed life? Are lives being changed? It's a really important question. After today's services, we will have baptized about 165 people so far this year. My hunch is that a lot of these people have been transformed. Lives are being transformed. So what we believe actually matters. The worldview that we hold is actually very important. Making Jesus Lord of your life will make you healthier and holier. Knowing Jesus is what anchors you in the Christian life. 
pledging your allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord and sovereign of your life is the anchor upon which all other meaningful life is supported. Let me offer a challenge to you today. I want to challenge you to pray for sacrificial courage in the midst of this kind of culture. You know, it's not easy to be vilified for believing what Christians have believed for 20 centuries, but that's where we are today. I just confess to you it's not easy to be a clergy among other clergy, standing up and believing what Christians have believed for 20 centuries. No one likes being called intolerant and bigoted. Nobody likes that. But we can claim the fact that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love and power and a sound mind. That's 2 Timothy 1.7. And we can pray right now for the courage that we will need today, and God will grant us courage. And so we should pray for it. Let me just also say that we should choose to be courageous for the sake of those who need to hear the truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. As a result, when we share our faith, we're not imposing our values on others. We are giving them the greatest gift that they will ever receive. But people bristle and become hostile when you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they, and, they, and, they, and they project onto us these labels of hateful and bigoted. But what's really happening here is that we're offering them the only hope, the only message that issues forth into life in this world. It's the greatest gift that we can give to people. And so we have to overcome. We have to choose courage because if we cower before their opposition, we not only dishonor the Lord, but we harm the very people that we're trying to reach. So we should pray for courage and choose courage, and all along the way we should love people whether they love God or not. This is the mandate. Jesus warned us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, 1 John 4.20. So we're called to stand for biblical truth because we love those with whom we share it. And the more resistance, more rejection there is from, from culture, the, the more we realize they need to hear the truth. So we pray and choose courage to honor Jesus. So there's truth that everyone should believe. Here's the second thing I want to say, that Jesus came to testify to that truth. He's the key witness. He is, he is our only witness. We have Jesus. Back to our verse, John 18. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Next phrase, watch. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Jesus was born to testify to the truth. This was not a social movement. This was not political activism. This was a line of demarcation. This is a line in the sand. This is, this is, this is, a, this is a point of eternal significance and consequence. Years ago, about 15 years ago, at the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church in Indiana, we were on the campus of Purdue University, and there were about 1,200 delegates there, half clergy and half uh, lay persons from local churches. 
And there was a man who stood to his feet and made a speech from the floor of the annual conference. And he was quite eloquent and quite passionate about the speech. He was very well spoken, very highly educated, had a very responsible job in the community. And he was a, he was a leader in his local church. And then he concluded his statement, and he gave his concluding summary statement with a tone of incredulity. And he said, and I quote, I would hate to think that accepting Jesus is the litmus test for whether or not you go to heaven. This eventually eroded into an actual vote on the floor of the annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Indiana to pass a resolution declaring that Jesus as Lord and the only way to heaven. And so someone put this resolution together declaring Jesus as Lord and the only way to heaven. Pretty straightforward. And it was placed to a vote on the floor of the annual conference. This is what Methodists do. They vote, vote on things. The vote was so close that a show of hands did not allow the bishop, the presiding bishop, to decide which side had passed. And so people were then asked to stand, and the ushers had to come and actually count people standing. All in favor of the resolution to make Jesus Lord and the only way to heaven, stand. Those opposed, stand. Jesus won by four votes. That was 15 years ago. To which my good friend Mark Beeson, some of you know that name, Mark Beeson. Mark Beeson said, as soon as we learned that Jesus won by four votes, he said loud enough for just about everyone in the room to hear without amplification, whew, that was close. I bet Jesus was worried about losing his position in the universe. <laughs> Tone of cynicism there. Today, I guarantee you the same resolution wouldn't come close to passing at the annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Indiana. Not even close. Since the Garden of Eden, the devil has filled the minds of people with lies and illusions. Lies about where we came from. Lies about why we are here. Lies about where we are going. That is why Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. John 14, 6, look on the screen with me. This is just days earlier. Jesus had said to Thomas, Philip, and the others, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let me just reiterate that truth is ultimately a person. Truth is a person. If you're a seeker of truth and you're investigating Christianity here at Union Chapel, I want you to know, we want you to know that we don't tell you that Christianity is a lifestyle or is it a set of rules or even a set of doctrines. We say it is about a person. It is about Jesus and the opportunity to be in relationship with him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you have said yes to a relationship, a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Because this truth, which we all long for, we all hope for, we all agonize for throughout history, has now been revealed to us. The word of God has become flesh and dwelt among us. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen God.
He is truth, the way and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. Now let me just add this third point. Everyone doesn't listen to Jesus. Everyone gets to choose what they believe. Back to our verse, John 18, 37. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Last phrase, watch it. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The implication is that some are on the side of truth and others won't listen to Jesus. Jesus says to Pilate, look, I'm not a threat to Rome. I'm not here for a political purpose. My kingdom is not of this world. It's much bigger than this world. So he says to Pilate, essentially, look, Mr. Pontius Pilate, are you going to be on the side of truth? Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to follow me? And John 18, 38, the next verse, Pilate retorts to Jesus with this tone of cynicism. He says, what is truth? What is truth? And with this, the Bible says, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So Pilate responds, what is truth? In other words, he's saying, just like many voices in our culture today, truth can't be known. Your truth, my truth, our truth, their truth. Truth is a moving target and can never be known. Pilate, listen, listen. Pilate literally walked away from the truth of the ages, and he was standing right in front of him. He turned and he walked away from ultimate reality. The pre existent, co eternal Word of God, who spoke and the universe came into being. He's standing right in front of him. Saying, this isn't about politics, politics. This isn't about your world, the world you live in. This isn't about that. This is about the truth. Will you believe the truth? Will you follow the truth? And Pilate, sarcastically, cynically, what is truth? Nobody can know the truth. People think they know the truth. They're naive. They're simpletons. This is a complex world, complex questions. Christians, ah. And he walked away from the only hope for his life. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You have to decide. Everyone, everyone has a choice. Everyone gets to choose. You get to choose. I get to choose. Jesus expects us to choose. No, no, don't, don't, don't push me into a corner like that. You know, I'm, I, I, it's, that's too much. I, I can't, it's overwhelming to me. I please don't ask me to choose. Jesus stands and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So you have to choose. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the way. I believe he is the truth. I believe he's the life. I believe him. 
Truth came into the world and revealed himself to us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, filled with grace and truth. I believe him. I believe him. Do you? Do you believe him? Choice is yours. Choice is yours. Let's pause and pray. Lord, I sense your presence here today. I thank you. I thank you for loving us so much that you gave your one and only son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I thank you today that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we can find hope in this life and the next in a relationship with you. I pray for anyone now within the sound of my voice who's yet to make this choice to follow Jesus. And I pray that you will give them the courage and the wisdom and the hope to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll just remain seated now, we're going to engage the baptism service. And I know that's going to be a great blessing to you.